Tonight I'd like for us to take a look at the life of David as recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and also chapter 12. Now, if someone was to ask you to write down what you might think of when you think of David, some people might write, well, I know he slew a bear and a lion with his bare hands. And some might write down, well, I know he slew a giant with the name of Goliath with a stone. And then some might write down what we're going to look at tonight is found in the 11th chapter of 2 Samuel, which is David's affair with a woman the name of Bathsheba. This represents, I'm sure, the darkest time in the life of David, something he did to put the greatest stain upon his life that he ever did. Mark Twain one time wrote that we're all like the moon. We all have a dark side. And we're going to look at the dark side of David here tonight in chapter 11. But it won't all be dark. There's some brightness, hopefully the Lord will bless us to see, that came out of this situation that he had. Now, when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David is about 50 years old. We know that David reigned for 40 years over Israel. So at 50, he started reigning at 30. So we're about halfway through his reign over the nation of Israel. Now, the 11th chapter starts off uh, showing that David is really not in the right place. Tells us that the time when kings should be out to war, David was in Jerusalem in his house. Now, what that means is, in David's day, they didn't have airplanes, didn't have tanks, they didn't have missiles and rockets and all these types of weapons. They had bows and arrows and spears and horses and chariots. And a lot of their battles was hand-to-hand combat. Well, they lived in a mountainous area. In the wintertime, they couldn't cross those mountains to engage in battle. And so nations just simply didn't go to war in the wintertime. And this is probably March, April, May. It's kind of in the springtime. And we know that Joab, David's general, had been sent by David to engage in battle. But David is not with them. It is true that David's men had discouraged him earlier from being personally involved in the battles. They knew David at this age that they didn't want anything to happen to him. He was more important to them, you know, as king and as their overall ruler than he would be out on the battlefield. But he still could have been in the area where the battles was taking place. He still could have been there to give personal encouragement. He still could have been there to devise the battle plan and to confer with Joab, his general. There was still plenty David could have done without actually being on the battlefield. But David was not there. David was still in Jerusalem. And we're told that David went on top of his house at evening time. And he looked, and apparently somewhere fairly close by, on the rooftop was a woman. She's not called Bathsheba at this time. I mean, the Bible doesn't call her name. But there was a woman who was washing on top of her rooftop. And David looked, and David continued to look. And that was the problem. Now, I have a question that comes up from time to time. What was Bathsheba doing taking a bath in the open? What was she doing on the rooftop in the public eye, so to speak, where somebody like David on top of his rooftop could look 
and see her. Nevertheless, she did, and David looked. Now, sin usually begins with a look. If you look in the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua, you'll find where a man by the name of Achan violated God's law and God's commandment when they went to the battle of Ai. They were commanded to destroy everything and to bring nothing back. But we find that Achan brought something back, and God knew it. Joshua didn't, but Joshua knew something was wrong. And when he investigated, he found out that Achan had taken some things he was not to have taken. He took some wedges of gold. He took some valuable things. When it was revealed who it was, Achan said, I looked and I saw. And he saw some things that he desired. He said, and I coveted. And he took those things and disobeyed God. As a result, Achan and all of his household were literally slain and destroyed. Sin begins with a look. And it's usually that prolonged look. When David looked and saw Bathsheba, I don't think he was looking for Bathsheba to begin with. But when he saw her and saw her bathing in the public, David certainly should have turned the other way. This meant a good time to apply what the Lord said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 6 in the Lord's Prayer. You know that, how the Lord's Prayer ends? We know how it begins. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But how does it end? The Lord said when you pray, you pray in this manner. It ends like this. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When he says, Lord, lead us not into temptation, he's saying lead us away from temptation. See, we're all going to have a moment here and there when we're tempted. And that's when we need to pray this prayer. Lord, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, in the book of James in chapter 1, you'll find where James says, If any man be tempted, let him not say he's tempted the Lord, for the Lord cannot be tempted evil, neither does the Lord tempt any man. But every man is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, and when lust takes place or conceives, he says, we have sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. Now, the word death means separation. There are times when the word death is used in the Bible when it does not have reference to a physical corporal death. Sometimes it's a death of fellowship. A person can die to the fellowship of the church. He could die to his marriage. His marriage could end because of something that he did. He might do something where he gets fired from work. He loses his job. And so death has many applications in the Bible. So sin, when it's finished, it brings forth death. And this is what we're going to see happens to David here in chapter 11. Now David looks, and he continued to look. And when David continued to look, then David was tempted. And the Bible says that David sent messengers. And the messengers were to go to, over to where Bathsheba was and to get her and bring her to David, which they did. And when David sent those messengers, it led to Bathsheba being tempted. And you might think, well, why did Bathsheba go? Uh, well, it, it was the king who was sending these messengers. And you didn't usually disobey the king. You didn't usually go against the king's command. And he sends messengers there to get her. But you have to wonder what she was going through her mind when these messengers come to get her to take her to see King David. 
But she went. And then when the act of adultery took place, we find then that the Lord was tempted. Now, in this act of adultery that David commits, we find that Bathsheba conceives and she has a child, or she's going to have a child. She sends back a message to David and says, I am with child. Now, this is the only recorded words of Bathsheba in this whole thing. But she says, I am with child. In essence, she was saying to David, the ball's in your court now. So what does David do? What should have David done? Well, in Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, Solomon says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But he that confesseth and forsaketh his sins shall find mercy. This has been a good time for him to just confess his sin, but he didn't do that. He's going to try to cover his sin. Well, Solomon says, and that's, you know, it's kind of interesting that Solomon is David's son. So Solomon, David's son, is going to write about something concerning what his father did not do. He that, what, covered his sins, he shall not prosper. He shall not. But whosoever confesseth and forsaketh, there's two parts to this, you confess it and you forsake it. He says, he shall find mercy. Minds from the New Testament of 1 John 1 9. Whereas he that confesses his sins says that God is faithful and just to forgive his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. That's a wonderful verse. He that confesseth his sin, God is just and faithful. He's two things. He's just and faithful to do what? To forgive his sins and to cleanse him from all unrighteousness. But David's going to try to cover his sin, and as Solomon says later on, He's not going to prosper in it. So David sends for Uriah. Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba. Uriah was one of the soldiers under the command of Joab. And you'll find reading later on where it gives a list of David's mighty men. And one of the mighty men of David was Uriah. Now he was a wonderful soldier. We'll see his commitment in a little while. But we find that he went and sent for Uriah. And so he comes, and David speaks to him, and David tells him to go home and to be with his wife. But he's not going to do that. David's going to have three plans, and none of them are going to work because he's trying to cover his sins, and he shall not prosper. Let's just notice this here. He sent, um, David sent to Joab saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. It seemed like a reasonable request. It seems like that's something the king would do to get information from the battlefield. They had to have a messenger to do that. They didn't have email and text and all those kind of things in that particular day. And David said to Uriah, Go down to thy house and wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house, and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. Not only did he send him back to his house, he sent a nice banquet meal to go along with it. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. David's plan doesn't work. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down to his house, David said to Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down to thine house? David's aggravated. David's agitated. Mainly because what his plan was for him to go to his house and 
be with his wife. And when things came out, it might appear that Uriah was the father, you see. But it didn't work. And Uriah said unto David, notice this. This shows what kind of man Uriah was and his integrity. Uriah said unto David, The ark in Israel and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do such a thing. He said, the soldiers are out there in the tents. The soldiers are not able to be at home with their wives. I'm not going to do it if they're not able to do it. This shows what integrity this man had. So David said to Uriah, tarry here today also, and tomorrow I'll let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. David made sure he drank enough wine to get intoxicated. And at even he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but went not down to his house. That didn't work either. I'm sure David thought, if I get him intoxicated, he'll forget about everything he just told me, why he didn't go the first time, and he'll just go back to his house. But it didn't work. He didn't go to his house either time. So David goes to the third part of his plan, or the third plan, you might say. Verse 14, it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now, this letter is going to be written by David you might say with the same pen that he wrote many, many wonderful psalms. And this letter is going to tell Joab that he's to put Uriah in the forefront of the battle, in the hottest place, where it's most likely he will not survive. And I suppose he folded it and sealed it or whatever and gave it to Uriah. And you know, Uriah might have just thought, well, wonder what the king wants to tell Joab is he could have opened it and saw what was in the letter, but he did not. So he goes back, and Joab reads the letter. And Joab does exactly what King David asked him to do. He took his own death warrant with him. He's traveling back to be with Joab to the scene of the battle, and he takes his own death warrant with him that David has written and give to him to take to Joab, the general. This just doesn't sound like David, does it? This doesn't sound like the David we've been preaching about. This doesn't sound like the David that we've been studying. But you know what it tells me? It's something I say from time to time. The very best of men are men at best. This proves without a shadow of a doubt that David was a sinner. (laughs) It proves without a shadow of a doubt when you take your eyes off the Lord, you're capable of anything. You walk in darkness when you do that. And that's what David's doing. He's walking in darkness. He's not walking in the light of the Lord anymore at this particular time. Now, in the past, we've seen where David, you know, uh, stumbled, you might say, a time or two here and there when he, you know, began to look at his own heart, when he began to depend upon his own self and not the Lord. But not to this degree. Do you know David never went into a battle without having on the armor for a battle? I'm sure of that. David went in many battles, but I'm sure when he did, he put on the armor of that day when he went in those battles. But you know what he doesn't have on right now? He doesn't have on the armor God gave him for these kind of situations. David was safer on the battlefield than he was in his own house. 
The armor I'm talking about is listed over here in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. When Paul writes to the church at Ephesus and tells the church there to be strong in the Lord in the power of his might. He said, put on the helmet of salvation to protect our mind. Without the helmet of salvation, you know how you'll think? You'll think like a carnal man. And put on the breastplate of righteousness. When you fail to put on the breastplate of righteousness, you have no protection for your heart, your feelings, your emotions. And then gird yourselves about your loins with, with truth. If you aren't girding yourself with the truth of God's word, then... You know, the Lord said, you shall know the truth, and truth shall make you free. You will not have that freedom. You'll wind up in captivity and bondage. And your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. If you're not doing that, your feet may walk in places you shouldn't walk. And without the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, you have no protection against the enemy. And then, without prayer, remember the last thing it says in Ephesians chapter 6? Above all things, having prayer. <laughs> and that's what ties it all together. And without prayer, you have no power. That's where your power comes from. It, it comes from prayer. God gives you the power as you pray to him for that. David didn't have the armor on. <laughs> he never went into a battle. I'm quite positive tonight. He never went into a battle against the Philistines without putting on the armor of that day that soldiers put on. But right now, he doesn't have on some armor that's extremely important. It's the armor I just described to you in that sixth chapter of the book of Ephesians. Uriah is put into the, four, the, the, the main part, heat of the battle. And where that was was near the wall. The ones that Joab then been pursuing had taken a refuge behind a wall, and Joy and them basically was just going to let them starve to death, so to speak, They'd run out of food, run out of water, then they were going to take the city. But before that happened, he sent some soldiers up there. And not only did Uriah die, but those other soldiers that died as well as he carried out the commandment of David. Now, <clears throat> we find where the tidings of all this comes back to David, he now gets the message that Uriah is dead. The messengers bring the message back to him. We find that Bathsheba mourns for her husband when she finds out he's been slain. And then we find at the end of this chapter where David sins and fetches Bathsheba. Now this is the second time David has sent for Bathsheba. The first time he sends messages to get Bathsheba to bring her there so that he can enter into an adulterous relationship. This time he sends and fetches her. Remember that expression when he fetched Mephibosheth back in the ninth chapter? He fetched her and brought her and she became his wife. But notice how the chapter ends. But the Lord was displeased with David. You know, the Lord wants you to do in a way that pleases him. But there's two things that will displease the Lord. One is going about our life and our activity without faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please him if we're not walking by faith. If we're walking by sight, it's impossible to please him. And the second thing that displeases the Lord is when we disobey him. Now, I don't think any mother or father 
would have any problem understanding about what I'm about to say. When you give your children instructions and teach them one thing and another, and they do it, it makes you feel good and you're pleased. But when they do not, it displeases you, does it not? How much more with God when we displease him? In the 16th proverb, we find where Psalmist says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, David's ways right here are not pleasing to the Lord. God is not pleased when his children sin. God is not pleased when his children break the Ten Commandments. Let's look at how many commandments has David broken now of the Ten Commandments? Well, you know the Ten Commandments are divided into two parts, the first four and the last six. And the first four has to do with our, uh, you might say, our walk with God. And the last six has to do with our walk with our fellow man. If you will look at five, six, seven, eight, nine, and ten, you're going to find in total where David violates all six of them. Thou shalt not steal, he stole another man's wife. Thou shalt not commit adultery, he committed adultery with Uriah's wife. Thou shalt not kill. Now, it is true that David did not himself literally kill Uriah, but he had him killed. He's still just as guilty if he did it in his own hands. Thou shalt not covet. He coveted another man's wife. Thou shalt not bear false witness. David was very deceptive in everything that he did, and deception is just another way of lying. You'll find 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10 are all broken by David. One by one, they're being broken. This displeased the Lord. Notice how chapter 12 starts out. And God sent Nathan. Now in chapter 11, we find where David sent the messengers twice. One to get Bathsheba to bring her to him so that they could have this act of adultery. And the second time he sent them was to get Bathsheba again and bring her that she might be his wife. David's going to send Nathan to David with a parable. Let's notice what it says here in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up, and it grew up together with him and with his children. It did eat of his own meat and drink of his own cup and lay in his bosom and was unto him as a daughter. Now David is that rich man. Uriah is that poor man. Bathsheba is this little ewe lamb. And there came a traveler unto the rich man and he spared to take it and he spared to take of his own flock and his own herd to dress for the wayfaring man that was coming to him, but took the poor man's lamb and dressed it for a man that was come to him. Here's a rich man. He's got a large flock. Here's a poor man. He's just got one lamb. Here comes a wayfaring man along, and the rich man, instead of taking one of his lambs, which he easily could have done, reaches up here and takes the only lamb that the poor man has. Now, David was a shepherd, right? He was a shepherd boy. He first uh, comes to our attention. He's a young man, a teenager, watching over his father's flock. So David understands something about lambs and sheep. Also, David's a king. As a king, uh, being the king that he was, he would have pity upon the poor. 
So this parable is very uh, wisely chosen that Nathan gives to David. Now up to this point, there's no reaction from David. But when he does react, what does he do? Verse 5. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that done this shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David doesn't even realize that he is judging his own self. He's in court. He judged, he's the judge. He judges the case. He's judging his own self. And he pronounces judgment. He says the man shall die. He shall restore fourfold. He's angry about the matter. You see, there's another lesson here. How easy it is for us to look at somebody else and see the sin in somebody else's life, but we don't see the sin in our own life. I think that's what the Lord was teaching in Matthew chapter 7. Where he says, judge not, lest you also be judged. Now that's misused and abused and taken out of context uh, by many in this world today. You know, when you take a stand for morality, when you take a stand for truth, when you take a stand for what's pleasing in the sight of God, they always will come back with Matthew 7, 1. Judge not. The Bible says, judge not. But they don't study the context. Now, let's see what the Lord said. Judge not, lest you also be judged. For what judgment ye judge, ye shall also be judged. All right? And with what measure you mete out, it shall be met out to you. He says, why you see the beam in your brother's eye, your neighbor's eye, but you don't see what's in your own eye. And the word there for what's in your neighbor's eye means a piece of straw, a little stick. But what's in your eye means a big piece of timber like a two by four. To me, it's like one drunk trying to tell another drunk he needs to quit drinking. They're both drunk. He said, you need to quit drinking. You need to sober up. <laughs> well, if he quit drinking and sobered up first, then he'd have some influence, wouldn't he? David doesn't even realize that he's passing judgment in his own self. He becomes angry when Nathan tells him this story. He says, this man shall die. He showed no pity. He shall restore fourfold. David is applying the law of Moses here. If someone stole a lamb or a sheep out of the flock and he was caught, he had to restore it fourfold. Now we're going to see some courage that Nathan has. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. <laughs> How much courage did it take for Nathan to say that to the king? <laughs> He's saying this to the king, King David. Thou art the man. You are the rich man. You are the man who took the little ewe lamb. You are the man that showed no pity. You are the man <laughs> that robbed the poor man of the one little ewe lamb that he had. Thou art the man. I'm sure you're right. I mean, I'm sure Nathan was probably <laughs> wondering what kind of response he was going to get when he made that declaration. Well, let's notice. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. Now, he's going to give David a little review of what God has done for him. 
And I gave thee thy master's house and their master's wives into thy bosom. And I gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have have given unto thee such and such things. David had forgotten the goodness of the Lord. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thy house. Those are sobering words. The sword shall never depart from thy house. In the book of Galatians in chapter 6 and verse 7 it says, Be not deceived, God shall not be mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Remember, David said the man shall pay fourfold. David's going to lose four sons. He's going to have four sons to die. He's going to reap what he's sown. Now let's continue to read what he says. The sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house. For the remaining 20 years that David reigned over Israel, he had constant problems and trials and tribulations in his kingdom and in his own house. I will take thy wives before thine eyes and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the, in the sight of this son. For thou did it secretly, but I will do the same before all Israel and before the son. He said, what you did, you did behind closed doors. You did it secretly, as far as the eyes of men are concerned. But I'm going to cause all these hang things to happen out in the wide open, in the public. And David said unto Nathan, here's David's response. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. You know why he said that? Because according to the law of Moses... If you were guilty of adultery, both the man and the woman were to be stoned to death. David and Bathsheba, according to the law of Moses, should have been stoned to death. But Nathan says, you're not going to die, David. The Lord had put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Howbeit, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also is born to thee shall surely die. Now, David is going to pray. David is going to fast. And he's going to plead with the Lord. He's going to pray to the Lord concerning this situation. But we notice in verse 18, it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him. He would not hearken to our voice. How would he then vex himself? We tell him the child is dead. But when David saw his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. The child lived seven days. One day short of eight. When a male child was born, on the eighth day, he was circumcised and named. This child was not circumcised. This child was not named by David and Bathsheba. But I will tell you that this child was named by God before the foundation of the world. Before time ever began, before the foundation of the world, God named this child. 
And sometime between when that child was conceived and this child died at seven days old, that child was circumcised. He was circumcised in the heart. Look in Romans 2, 28, 29. For he's not a Jew, which is one outwardly in the flesh. That is, circumcision is not that which is outwardly in the flesh, but that which is inward in the heart. He says, uh, it's of the Spirit and not of the letter, whose praise is of God and not of men. When you're born, the Spirit of God, your heart is circumcised. Every elect child of God sometime in their earthly journey between conception and death will experience the circumcision that I'm talking about. So while David didn't circumcise him, while David didn't name him, God had a name for him and God circumcised him. Now I, guess I actually I, I thought about that tonight not long before I left the house when I was pondering on this and considering it and it, it came to me this boy uh, this child, this son, was named, and he had a, the most important name of all. He had the name that God gave him, and he was circumcised before he left this world at the age of seven days. Then notice verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he came in his own house. What did David do? He done what I should do. He did what you should do. He did what we all should do. Regardless of what we're going through in life, regardless of the circumstances, the house of the Lord is more important than our house. He didn't go to his house and then the house of the Lord. He went into the house of the Lord first and then he went in his house. And what did he do when he went to the house of the Lord? He went in the house of the Lord and he worshiped. He just got the news of the death of his son and he went into the house of the Lord and he worshiped. When my father died, I, I know some of you, I've told this before. My father died on a Sunday morning, about 6.30 in the morning. And we called the funeral home people, and they came and got the body. It was about 8, 8.30. And I looked at my brother, and he looked at me, and we said, well, what should we do now? And I said, well, we, sh we need to go back to Dad's house and get ready and go to church. And so that's what we did. We went back to my dad's house. We took a shower. We changed. Put on our church clothes. My dad died at 6.30 in the morning. At 10.30, we're in Andrew Primitive Baptist Church in the house of God there to worship. And on that occasion, I actually took about 15 or 20 minutes to try to preach to the Lord's people about four or five hours after my father had passed away. I thought that was the right thing to do. On the way there, I told Karen, I said, well, uh, this is just like Dad. Uh, all of our life, Daddy has always put the Lord first, always put the church first, drilled in, in on us that we should put the Lord first, that we should put, uh, you know, going to the house of God first in our life. And so he passed away on Sunday morning of all days, on Sunday morning, the Lord's day, and he died early enough where we could take care of business and then go home and get ready and go to church. <laughs> I just, <laughs> that means a lot to me, the way it all, I mean, all fell out. Perfectly, you might say. <laughs> David arises, washes, anoints himself, changes his apparel, came to the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then his servant said, And what thing is this thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was yet alive. When the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who can tell whether God? will be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he's dead. Wherefore should I fast? What good would that do? Can I bring him back again? No, he cannot. 
But then notice this right here. This has been a tremendous comfort to God's people down through the ages. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David knew the child went somewhere that one day he was going to go. The child couldn't come back to him, but he could go to the child. David believed in the resurrection. David believed at death, the Lord's people leave this world and go to a place called heaven. He believed his child was in glory. He believed his child was in heaven with God who blessed him to have him. And he said, he can't come to me, but I can go to him. Now let's conclude here tonight in verse 24. And David comforted Bathsheba his wife and went into her and lay with her and she bare a son and he called his name Solomon and the Lord loved him. When you read about the life of Solomon, if you go read in 1 Kings, you read his life from chapter 1 through chapter 11. The first 10 chapters of 1 Kings highlights all the great achievements of Solomon. It highlights his successes. It highlights his reign. He reigned for 40 years like David did. It's all good. It's all positive. You come to chapter 11, you know what the Bible says about Solomon in chapter 11 of 1 Kings? It says he did not that which pleased God. He disobeyed God. He that was even the sight of God. He violated God's law that you were not to multiply wise, and he had 700 of them. <laughs> and then that's mind-boggling, isn't it? 700 wise, 300 concubines, that's 1,000 women. And you know what the Bible says they did? They turned his heart from serving God. And some of them wound up falling into idolatry. Now, this ought to prove to anybody that Solomon, the Bible here says the Lord loved him. He was a child of God, but he did not persevere. He did not persevere. The last thing you read about Solomon is his death, but that entire 11th chapter shows us how Solomon fell from his service to the Lord married all them wives, fell into idolatry, did that was evil in the sight of the Lord, did not please God, kept not his commandments. He did not persevere. All the elect family of God do not persevere. They're all preserved in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they do not all persevere. We need to, we should, need to teach the importance of perseverance I want to persevere. I want to be found faithful. When I draw my last breath, I want somebody to say, he fought a good fight. He kept the faith. He finished his course. You can put that on my tombstone, hopefully. That'd be pleasing to me to know that I was able to do that. When I draw my last breath, I want people to be able to say that. Solomon couldn't say that. Paul could. <laughs> Paul could. And notice this last thing. He called his name Solomon, which means peace or peaceable. And the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah, because the Lord. You know what the word Jedidiah means? It means beloved of the Lord. What does David's name mean? It means beloved. David's name meant beloved. His son now, his name means beloved. 
<laughs> God's going to bless Solomon to build the temple. He's going to give, his name means peace and peaceable. He's going to give him seven years of peace and rest from his enemies where he could build the temple. Now, in summary and review, what did God do for Solomon? Excuse me, for David. Well, first of all, he spared his life. According to law, he should have been stoned. He spared his life. We find where he blessed him with another son. That son's going to build the temple. Every time they looked at Solomon, David and Bathsheba looked at Solomon, I think they could see in Solomon a picture of God's forgiveness. Tonight, before you, when you go home, before you go to bed, just take enough time to read Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Both those psalms were written by David concerning this experience. And Psalms 32 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, when he says, Blessed is the man whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whom God will not charge, or yet God will not impute iniquity or not impute sin to. He's quoting from Psalms 32 that David wrote concerning this experience right here. Go to Psalms 51, and you'll read where David is going to confess his sin against the Lord and ask the Lord for mercy. He's going to ask the Lord to cleanse him. He's going to ask the Lord to create him a clean heart. And then he's going to say to the Lord in verse 10 and 11, Restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And it says, When you do that, Lord, I'll teach transgressors thy ways. Those two psalms teach me tonight that David received forgiveness of the Lord. His sins were covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the blood of Christ was shed, it redeemed you from your sins, enabling God to forgive you for your sins, that your sins are covered, my friends, in eternity and also in time by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> David had to suffer the consequences. Even though he's forgiven, he had to suffer the consequences. But I believe the joy of his salvation was restored to him. And he walked close with the Lord, I think, the remaining days of his life. Thank you very much for your good attention tonight.